All right, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. Happy Easter, happy Resurrection Day to all of you. Super glad that you're here. Whether, yeah, we've got a lot of kids who are here today. It's exciting. We've got all kind of exciting things that are going on today. We're going to worship Jesus through communion. It's been, I think, a year since we've taken part in communion together with coronavirus and everything that's been going on. We also have two baptisms that are planned um, right at the end of our service around 11 o'clock. So we're excited that you're here. We're excited that we get to worship Jesus together. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. And if we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love to meet you before you leave today. You can grab a Bible and turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We've been studying the gospel of John for the last year, and we happen to meet Jesus in the resurrection on Easter. And so we're excited to look at John 20 today. John Irving, an author, he wrote in his book, A Prayer for Owen Manning. I find that Holy Week is draining. No matter how many times I have lived through his crucifixion, My anxiety about his resurrection is undiminished. I am terrified that this year it won't happen. That that year it didn't. Anyone can be sentimental about the nativity. Any fool can feel like a Christian at Christmas. But Easter is the main event. If you don't believe in the resurrection... You're not a believer. Those are harsh words. They're true words. For thousands of years, followers of Jesus have believed that this is true. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you aren't a Christian. And at the same time, for those of us who believe in the resurrection, there is a struggle with predictability that's built up over the years. Whether it's the number of times we've heard this story in Sunday school... The number of times that we've seen the flannel graph illustrate this story, or maybe even an Easter play, with a bedazzled Jesus rising from the spray foam tomb. Has anybody been there? I'll never forget the year. I'm really grateful for this building that we meet in. This building is not the church. This building is just a sanctuary. But we are the church, the people of God. But I'll never forget the year that we met Uh, We rented Circuit Playhouse for a period of time because we didn't have a space like this. And I walked in. It was near Easter Sunday. And I walked in to find the set for Pinkalicious. And it was Pinkalicious. But it was only Pinkalicious by day. Because by night it was a drag show. Complete with a stage that went out into the audience for a runway that had light bulbs going up and down it and light bulbs all around the stage and silver tinsel hanging down. And as I'm just taking it all in and realizing this is going to be our stage for Easter this year, one of the smart mouth setup team walks up behind me and says, do you think Jesus is going to rise from the dead through the silver tinsel? I don't know what your experience with Easter is like. Probably as strange and odd maybe as mine have been over the years. But one thing that's certain. Christians oftentimes when it comes to Easter as a church holiday or as a holy day. We get pretty confused. 
There's a temptation to believe that following Jesus begins and ends at the resurrection. And that's not at all the case. The truth of the matter is that the resurrection serves as a catalyst in our lives for ongoing relationship with God and life change. The resurrection is so instrumental in our lives that there are no Easter baskets or fuzzy bunnies that can sum it up. Instead, the resurrection is a call to life. Life in Jesus as we follow the one who defeated death and sin and the grave and who offers us life both now and throughout all eternity for all who will follow him. And that's the question. Will you follow Jesus? Today we look in John 20 at two of his followers. We look at Mary and John and their salvation stories. We look at the moment in which they came to know Jesus. So grab a Bible and I'm going to read John chapter 20 verses 1 through 18. The big idea for today is this. Seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. And that's all you need to know. That's the only point for today. There's no points to this sermon. The point is Jesus and the resurrection. And seeing is believing. And when you see Jesus for who he truly is, there's nothing that you can do but believe and follow after him. That's what Mary and John discovered in very different ways. Just as those of us who have followed Jesus have discovered him in very different but very personal ways in which he has spoken to us. I pray he speaks to you this morning. John chapter 20 verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter. He was younger. And reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. When the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. 
She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to my brother. I go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Verses 1 and 2 say that it's the first day of the week. It's Sunday. Just like a Sunday like we're experiencing today. But they don't say it's the Sabbath or they don't say it's the day after the Sabbath. Instead, each gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all really specific in saying the first day of the week. And so we continue that same rich tradition of no longer worshiping on the Sabbath, as the Jews did, but now worshiping on Sunday. That Jesus was crucified on Passover on Friday. He was hurriedly buried by Joseph of Arimathea, the scriptures tell us. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, not one of the twelve, but one of the others who followed him. So Joseph of Arimathea, along with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is known as uh, Nick at night. He was um, a Pharisee who came to Jesus with questions by night. And so we call him Nick at night. So Joseph of Arimathea asked for Jesus' body. Along with Nick at night, Nicodemus comes and they hurriedly bury Jesus. The scriptures tell us that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. And they wrapped him in linen cloths with these spices. So if you use your imagination just a little bit, think back to when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. If you remember, Lazarus, he came out with his grave clothes on. You have 75 pounds of spices that are going to be wrapped around this body. And so Jesus is likely laid on a slab of stone in the tomb in much like almost a mummy-like sarcophagus. 75 pounds of spices have been packed around his body. Uh, and linen wrapped around him in such a way he's probably got about nearly 100 pounds of material around him. And then a separate shroud that would be wrapped around his head. So consider what that would have been like. Mary Magdalene, one of Jesus' main followers, shows up in this text. She was still with him at the cross. She had helped to fund his ministry um, all throughout his three and a half years of ministering. Luke chapter 8 tells us that she, along with some of the other ladies, actually funded Jesus' ministry. And she had met Jesus. Uh, the scriptures tell us that Jesus had cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. I don't know if any of you have seen um, the, the show The Chosen. Has anybody seen it? Um, so The Chosen, go to your app store on your phone sometime and download The Chosen. And you can stream it to any device in your house. And it's the story of Jesus. And it's, it's amazing. They're, they're filming it right now. It's really well done. Um, it's almost impossible to watch without shedding a tear. And Mary Magdalene is the first story. And in a remarkable way, it shows the freedom that she gained the peace, the joy, the hope for life that she found in Jesus as he freed her from seven demons. Can't even imagine what this must have been like, the torment that she experienced. 
And she had rearranged her entire life as a result of that in order to follow Jesus and to fund his ministry. And she had continued to follow him even to the point where the disciples had left. And she followed him all the way to the cross. And she's there at the cross. And now she's here at the tomb the first morning after the Sabbath. And there's lots of Marys throughout the scriptures. Magdalene is not her last name. She was from the area of Magdala, which was near Galilee. So she's called Mary of Magdalene in order that we would know who she is. But she's here early. And she's here. And I'm, I'm wondering why she's here. My guess is this. We know that she's there and she's hoping that the stone would be rolled away in order that she could tend to Jesus' body. Now the stone, we also, oftentimes we think of the stone as like a round stone. Archaeologists have found over 900 tombs from the second temple period where Jesus, around the time that Jesus would have been buried. There's only four tombs that actually have a round stone. All the others have kind of a, a cork-shaped stone that would still be very heavy. So imagine this large kind of cork-shaped stone that's plugged in the hole of the tomb that would have to be pulled out, and yet still it's so heavy, somehow rolled away. And Mary is showing up, and she's wondering how this is going to be rolled away. And my question is, why is Mary there? I mean, Jesus is dead, right? Guys, my guess is this. Have you ever made an attempt to make the bed up at home, men? Anybody? Ever made an attempt to get all those throw pillows just right? And your wife, what does she do? She comes in and she goes, hey, thanks for trying. And then she takes all the pillows off and she straightens the sheets up and she gets the comforter just right. And she puts it all back together. And what does it look like? It looks immaculate. And she says, thanks for trying. I'm guessing that's what Mary was doing. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, thanks for trying, but we're going to show up and finish preparing Jesus' body as it should have been prepared. It was Friday. You're in a hurry. It's been the Sabbath. We couldn't come. It's Sunday. It's the first day of the week, and Mary is there before it's even daylight. And she's still mourning. The Sabbath has hindered her and the other women from making their final preparations, and so they hurry to the tomb Still in disbelief, still in agony, still in pain. But to their surprise, they see the stone is missing. And in the darkness, they run to tell Peter, who seems to be in charge of the disciples, and John. And it doesn't appear that, they, that she looked into the tomb. It's still dark, and, and she's startled, and she quickly runs away to report this. And John, John's younger than Peter, so... John's a faster runner, and John gets there first, and when he reaches the tomb, he looks in, and he sees the linen cloth lying there. Peter catches up and barges into the tomb, like Peter always does. Peter just barges right in, and as he does, he looks down, stooping. He sees the linen cloth and the face cloth neatly folded by itself. And it's clear that Jesus' body is missing. Now imagine this. All these linen cloths and all these spices wrapped. And the way that the gospel writers describe it, it's as if all of this material that was around Jesus has just fallen in place and his body has disappeared. I think 
that this is what grabs John's attention. If you are reading this story for the first time, clearly, if you are like, I don't know about all this, and this is the place where you say, well, who done it? Right? That's what you always ask in a mystery. Who done it? Who took Jesus' body? Who stole it? Because it's obvious that he died. It would have been impossible to live through the flogging that he, re- that he received. We could go back and we could look at the cat of nine tails that would have ripped flesh from his bones and the amount of blood loss that he would have had. We can look and see the kind of bruising that he would have received as, as the cross member was strapped to his arms and as he attempted to walk and as he fell Many surgeons have said it would be like uh, being in a head-on accident and striking the steering column without a seatbelt on. And Jesus is in such agony with such loss of blood that he can't even carry his own cross. He's suffering. Most doctors think from hypovolemic shock, low blood volume that causes shock as his heart would race to pump blood that's not there. The victim collapses or faints due to low blood pressure and The kidneys shut down to preserve body fluids. And the person experiences extreme thirst and can't replenish their fluids. This was Jesus' state. There's no chance that Jesus swooned. There's all these different theories. And one of the major theories is the swoon theory. That somehow Jesus just fainted and then that he Came that he woke back up three days later. There is no chance of this. No one lives through a flogging and crucifixion. And the soldiers proved that. The soldiers, they proved that. So if you're a skeptic, then obviously, you know, if you see the soldiers who plunge their spear into Jesus' side and blood and water comes out, and you see this man who has suffered and died then obviously it must have been Jesus' disciples who took his body, right? Because if he's dead and his body's gone, then then the disciples must have done it. But how would this be possible when the Roman guards feared death at the expense of falling asleep and having prisoners stolen? And that's in fact the story that the Pharisees concoct. When they learned of the empty tomb, they paid off the guards, which... By the way, it's really interesting to me that as you look at this story, the Pharisees on the Sabbath, if you read some of the other Gospels, you'll see, the Pharisees became concerned. They wanted, like anyone who's committed a crime, they want to cover all their tracks. And so on the Sabbath, they go back to Pilate and they say, we remembered that over and over again, there was a rumor that he said that he would rise on the third day. And so they begged Pilate that his tomb would be sealed and that guards would be placed outside. And that's exactly what happened. But Jesus' body is missing. And so they go and they say to the guards, look, just tell everyone that you fell asleep and that his disciples came and stole the body. And if you have any trouble with Pilate, just have Pilate talk to us. Now, what are the chances of that actually taking place? The guards who stood there at the tomb guarded the tomb at the sake of their own death if this body or this prisoner went missing. 
If this was the case, it would make no sense, even if Jesus' disciples did steal his body, it would make no sense that they would go on to live the lives that they lived. To be tortured and to live incredible lives of surrender for a cause that if they stole his body was all a hoax and a lie. But instead they would do exactly as the Gospels report. In their sadness, they would go back to their former lives. Many of them to be fishermen. All of their responses in this story to me are fascinating. Think about the responsive that people have to Jesus' death and to the resurrection. Peter sees an empty tomb, but doesn't yet believe. The Pharisees remember Jesus' claim to rise from the dead in three days, so they had the tomb sealed and they posted guard. They have knowledge, but they don't believe the information. John, the scriptures say in verse 9 that John didn't understand the scriptures, but yet he believed. Isn't that fascinating? I think John looked in the tomb, John saw the linen cloths that were lying there, and John believed. Now, Mary, on the other hand, it seems that she returns to the tomb after Peter and John had left. And why was she crying? Well, she's crying because the one who she has followed for all of this time is dead. And at this point, she turns around and she mistakes Jesus for the gardener. Apparently, Jesus' appearance had changed in some way. In each of his resurrection appearances, at first, people don't recognize Jesus. And I find it very interesting that Jesus doesn't just blurt out, it's me, it's me. He gives people the opportunity to discover, just as he does today. Mary shows up and she mistakes Jesus for the gardener. She seems to turn away from him and he asks two questions. Notice he doesn't announce himself. He says, why are you weeping? Which would be a mild rebuke to Mary. Mary, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Jesus' question to Mary is an invitation for each of us to reflect on the kind of Messiah. Not only that she was expecting, that, but also what kind of Messiah are you expecting? How about you? Are you so burdened by your own sadness and sin that you can't see the loving hand of your Savior Jesus reaching out to you? Are you so filled with anger and despair that you can't see the love the Father has for you and the hope that can be found in trusting Him? Who are you seeking in this life? Jesus is better. He's better than any earthly dream or success that you can imagine. Jesus is better. And the only way to find Him is by following Him. One thing we notice about Mary is that she never stops searching for Jesus. Every time we turn around in this story, we see her love for Jesus, her nearness to Jesus. And this results in Jesus first appearing to Mary, which makes no sense if this isn't a true story. It would make no sense if a writer was writing a false narrative 
to have the Savior and Messiah and God raised from the dead and appear to a woman. Someone who in this time had no rights of her own. Her witness in court wasn't even deemed as a true witness. Why would the gospel writers report that Jesus' first appearance was to someone so lowly in society as a woman unless it truly happened? And in this story, there is something intimate and personal about the way that Jesus says, Mary. Jesus calls her by name. And in that moment, everything changes. And Jesus calls each of us by name. Today, Jesus is calling out to each of us. He knows you intimately and personally. And He meets you in the everyday. I think sometimes we wait for these grand car wrecks. Or moments where our life is being threatened. And if we get cornered in such a bad way. Then maybe we might call upon Jesus. But what's interesting to me is that Jesus meets His disciples in each of His appearances after His resurrection in very ordinary, everyday circumstances. He meets them at a private dinner. He meets two men walking along a road and spends the majority of the day just walking with them, not announcing Himself. He meets a woman weeping in a garden. He meets some men fishing, working a lake. We've made following Jesus in the West, we've made it all about information. All the while, God is interested in knowing us and forming a relationship in which we would not simply believe, but that our lives would be transformed and that everything about them would be rearranged in order that we could follow Him. I wonder what would happen in Memphis today if people became so enthralled with Jesus that they left the concerns of their own safety and security, their prominence and their prosperity, and they left all that behind and they said, my life is centered on following Jesus. I think we would look a lot like Mary. We couldn't contain ourselves because seeing is believing. And John and Mary had come to realize that because Jesus had reversed the irreversible, that everything had changed. i got a couple stories I want to share with you as we end today. Have you ever come to that place in your life? That moment where you've realized that everything has changed because of the resurrection? Back in the late 1800s, Dwight L. Moody built what was one of the first megachurches. It was in Chicago. could seat 10,000 people. It was an amazing church. He was an amazing evangelist. God did great things through him. A drunk walked into that church one day. There was no one there. And as he looked over the pulpit, there was a sign that said, God loves you. It hung there all the time. The drunk looked at it and he was furious. And he stormed out of the church and he said, it's impossible. There's no way that God loves me. And that message continued in his mind. It continued to burden him. Throughout the day, he made his way back to the church building. And by that time, it had filled with people. Dwight L. Moody was preaching. The drunk came in and he found a seat in the back. 
And as he sat, tears streamed down his face uncontrollably. Moody finished preaching and everyone left. And Moody made his way over to the man and he said, Hello, sir, what in the message tonight stirred your heart? And the man said, I never heard a thing you said. There was nothing in your message that stirred my heart. The sign that stood above the pulpit, God loves you. I can't get over it. This. Maybe you're hurt and overwhelmed. Jesus offers joy and peace and hope. Easter and the resurrection are the epicenter of belief. It's not a belief that grew up in the church. It's the belief around which the church itself grew up and the belief on which all of our faith is based. And you must decide what you believe about the resurrection. There's no neutral. There's no just kind of being okay with Jesus. There's no just kind of believing that there's a God. There is no neutral. And although it takes faith to believe, it also takes faith to doubt. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is overwhelming. And for anyone who would be here today and who would say, I don't normally go to church, and I'm not really into all this religious stuff, and I'm maybe just here for a friend because they invited me here. Listen, you don't have to be in religious, into religious stuff either. Because Jesus wasn't into religious stuff. Jesus shared a gospel that was overwhelming. The gospel was such good news that it didn't say, you toe the line, you stop drinking and doing all the things that the church says is wrong, and then you can come to know me. Jesus said, you are loved. Just as you are You are loved. And when you understand that message, that good news, you will be overwhelmed by the goodness of God and by the power of the resurrection. The evidence of Jesus' resurrection, it's overwhelming. There's no tomb or site, which is remembered today where he was buried. Nobody was ever produced. And believe me, there were a number of people who were looking For a body. His followers were changed from fearful men and women to courageous warriors, all because of one truth. The resurrection changed everything. For them, seeing was believing. And when the disciples believed, their lives were never the same. They surrendered everything to Jesus and followed him, even to their deaths. And my question for you today. Is are you willing to follow Jesus even to your death? That's his call. To take up your cross and follow him. He doesn't promise a life of comfort or ease. He doesn't promise safety or security. He promises, I will be with you. Both now and throughout all eternity. And that's all we have. Because this world doesn't promise safety and security. In this world, no matter how many apps or no matter how much technology you have, it also doesn't promise ease. Only Jesus offers us life, both now and throughout all eternity. Last story. 
The church that I told you about earlier in Chicago, Dwight L. Moody's church, later Moody died. And they called a pastor, John Harper. He was a widower. He had a six-year-old daughter. They called him to come over from Europe where he lived. And he had taught some at the church. And they called him to come and be their pastor. And so he booked a ticket on the Titanic. This is a story that's rarely heard and rarely told. John Harper was on the Titanic that fateful night when they struck an iceberg. And as everyone was running around seeking safety, thinking about their own lives and how they might survive, John Harper secured his seat on a lifeboat for his six-year-old daughter. Most likely, since he was a widower and her only parent, he could have had a seat along with her. But he forewent his seat and instructed all of those who were around him who were Christians not to board the lifeboats. But to give those who didn't know Jesus the chance to continue living that they might meet Jesus. One man pushed him out of the way, rejecting his message, to which John took off his life jacket and said, You take my life jacket, you need it more than I do. John continued seeing this moment in time as an opportunity that God had given him as an urgent mission, sharing the gospel, even after the boat broken too. It was reported that John swam around in the water asking people to give their lives to Jesus, to surrender to Jesus before their final moments. One man, four years later, at a time where those who survived came together, four years later in Ontario, he told of John who swam near him and said, give your life to Jesus. And he had refused And moments before John would die, he had swam back. And this man realized that he was moments away from death. And he surrendered his life to Jesus. And he said, John succumbed to hyperthermia and he drowned. Moments after that, a rescue boat came by and saved this man. He said, I was his final convert. There were three categories of passengers that boarded the Titanic. They were placed in three different categories. After that fateful night, they were reduced to only two. Known to be saved and known to be lost. God loves you. He always has and He always will. But that demands a response from you. What is your response today? Will you be those who are known to be saved because you've trusted in Jesus' resurrection? Or will you be those who are known to be lost? Jesus says for those who reject Him, that they'll spend eternity in a place called hell far from Him. But for those who know Him, that they will receive life both now and throughout all eternity. If you don't know Jesus, hear it today. God loves you. He always has, He always will, but He demands that you surrender your life to Him. It's as easy as praying and saying, God, I realize that I am a sinner, that I am in need of a Savior, that Jesus, You went to the cross for me. You died for my sins. 1 John 4.10 says, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent Jesus 
in order that he would suffer God's wrath and God's judgment for our sins. And then the Bible says that Jesus rose again on the third day. Listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm just going to challenge you. I believe it takes more faith to doubt the resurrection than it does to believe it. I challenge you today, if you don't know Jesus, find someone that you came here with who's a friend who knows Jesus. Come and talk to me afterwards. I would love nothing more. This would be the greatest Easter ever to have the opportunity to introduce you to the one who has changed everything in my life and in the lives of those who've come to know him and who follow him. Jesus loves you. God loves you. He always has. He always will. I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, today we're going to take communion together. And uh, this is really exciting for many of us. So if you look um, on your seats, there are some individual baskets that have individual communion in them. And if you're in the rows on the side, I think they're um, below your seats. And so if you're sitting on the outside aisle, if you look underneath your chair, you'll see some baskets that have communion in them. And we'll take these together so, if you're not familiar with these, we don't normally do it this way, I'll warn you. There's a little small flap of a cellophane on top that you'll find the little small flap first before you grab the big flap, okay? So, there's a little wafer underneath. So, communion is a rhythm of preaching to, to finish this Sunday gathering and to celebrate through baptism. And so, I'm going to invite the families who have a zero to two-year-old in the nursery, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and pick your babies and young kids up. And you can go out, you can exit the evergreen door downstairs and walk right up the sidewalk. And we're going to do the baptisms right in front of the church building. There's a big silver trough out front. You can't miss it. So if you have a zero to two-year-old, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and be dismissed uh, to grab your kids and to meet us out front. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we thank you. Thank you that we can celebrate the resurrection. And God, we, in an hour, in a little time that we've spent together, there is no possible way that we can begin to describe the peace we have in Jesus, the hope we have in Jesus, the joy we have in Jesus. God, the mere fact that we are here this morning is your grace. Jesus, this world overflows with your grace around us. And we miss you all the time. God, I pray for those who are sick in sin who are here today. I pray for those who have come here, God, with a fist that is balled up, angry, shaking it against you. And God, I pray today that you might begin to soften their heart. God, I pray that, that they would not miss the fact, God, that you... You love them. God, I pray that their hearts would be changed by the resurrection. God, may we all be fueled by this message. May we all examine our lives. And as we've taken communion together, may it be a reminder to us that, God, you've called us to follow you. And that doesn't make sense in any world other than in your kingdom and in your way. But God, may we follow you. May we find peace and joy and hope in you. God, thank you for these two young men who have come to know you, who are going public in their faith today. I pray that their testimonies would speak loudly and clearly, that you still speak, that you 
are evident that you are still at work, that your spirit is on the move in our world. So God, thank you that you are powerful.